Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There are moments in our life when we are shaped through adversity and challenge. Propelled through turbulent change, we're presented with an opportunity to take wings and soar from a dark place to one of light. I'm Leslie Salem, founder of Over the Bloody Moon, on a mission to take the muddle out of menopause and show the positive side to this time of life. At Over the Bloody Moon, we believe in three T's to help us thrive, a team, tools, and a tribe. In our second series of The Changemakers, we invite you to meet clinicians and specialists who share their experience and knowledge to help you manage your menopause. Come join us for the flight. In today's show, we're going to be talking about pelvic health and menopause. Urine leakage becomes more common for women post-childbirth, as well as during and post the menopause transition. As estrogen levels start to drop, the pelvis muscles may relax, leading to incontinence. This has an impact on daily activities, exercise and sexual health. Post-menopause, nearly two in three women will experience some form of incontinence or other pelvic problems. However, with a bit of self-disciplined care, in most cases, we can change our health story and outcome. I'm joined today by Over the Bloody Moon's Pelvic Health Advisor, Jane Simpson, continence specialist who practices at the London Clinic. Jane is author of the Pelvic Floor Bible and is going to be sharing some tips on ways we can better look after this important but often overlooked part of the body. Um, Jane, welcome. It's so lovely to catch up with you again. I can't believe that a year has passed since we we last caught up. I can't believe it either. Where does the time go? And it's been quite a year for us all, I think. And uh, it's difficult to have had face-to-face meetings over the last year. And certainly I think that's been very sad for a lot of women with pelvic floor dysfunction but we're getting back to normal now so oh it must have been incredibly challenging for you was it was challenging and in fact the very first patient who came to see me after we opened up again properly to sort of burst into tears and had had a prolapse happen after giving birth to her baby and she'd been waiting sort of just waiting waiting and uh, so it was a great relief to be able to look after her properly so yeah, yeah. well you really are in the front line of sort of essential services aren't you <laughs> I'm afraid so yes what I do can't really be done remotely and so although we can have these nice conversations which helps more women than I can do um, as a single person in a clinic um, which is great and it's nice to be part of it Leslie so thank you for having me. Oh and we're, we're delighted that you're associated with Over the Bloody Moon as our continence specialist advisor so thank you very much for making time to chat to us today. Today's podcast is focused on pelvic health and who better to talk to than yourself author of the pelvic floor bible um, which is a fantastic read so I do recommend whether you are a man or a woman to get that book because it really does go to show that if you put a bit of investment now we can really have sort of an impact positive impact on our health outcomes so Jane we're going to be talking about pelvic health for those people that aren't you know necessarily so sure you know what is the pelvis area and what makes it healthy 
So if you think about your your anatomy, your body, and, and a lot of people do Pilates and yoga, and they use their core. So if you think of what your core is, so it's your diaphragm at the top, it's your lower abdominals at the front and your lower back muscles at the back. And the pelvic floor is really the bottom of the core. So if you think of your pelvic girdle, the thing that your legs are attached to, um, your pelvic floor is the bottom of that. It's like a hammock of muscles and literally, you know, without it, your innards will drop out. It's a very important part of our anatomy, keeps us dry it stops us from passing wind in public and wetting ourselves sometimes if we sneeze or cough or laugh. And we use it every day to relax it, to go to the toilet, to, to wee and to open our bowels. And if you think of it going from the front to the back, so from your pubic bone at the front to your tailbone, to your coccyx at the back, and then sort of side to side as well. So to the bones that we sit sit on our, our sort of bones on our hip, on our bottom. And it's a very important structure that unless it comes out to bother us, we don't really think about our pelvic floor, which we should before it gives us trouble, really. Mm, so true. And let's talk about menopause um, with all the hormone changes that are going on. So how does that impact on women's pelvic health? Well, it's very interesting. I think in various ways, I mean, certainly one of the big things that can happen at the menopause is increased urinary tract infections, increased stress incontinence and increased prolapse. So all sorts of things can affect us. It's largely due to the drop in oestrogen. So as our oestrogen levels diminish, our periods stop. And we have a lot of oestrogen receptors in the urethra. So the urethra is the pipe that comes from the bladder to the outside. And it's coated in oestrogen receptors, which are very important to that, you know, that feeling we get when we put the key in the door and we think, oh my goodness, I need to get to the loo now, this very second, (laughs) or I'm going to wet myself. And when those diminish, we suddenly start thinking, oh goodness, I've got this urge to pee. Mm. Or I've suddenly got more UTIs, urine infections, or suddenly there's a funny feeling down there. And so as the menopause comes on, we we haven't really thought about our pelvic floor. I see too many women every week who say to me, you know, I wish I'd done something about this when I was younger, but we, we're we busy doing other things. And if it isn't really bothering us, we are not keen to do that. And if you think we're going to live a third of our lives in the menopause, you know, it's a long time. We're also being a lot more active. And there's lots of evidence that all that high impact exercise that we're doing in, in our youth impacts us as we age. And as we are living longer, certainly than the last generation, I think it's important that we look after our pelvic floor health. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we've been given this gift, haven't we, of sort of, you know, extra time. This is the first generation, really, of having that and the opportunities to make the most of it. So, you know, sadly, it's not until people are in crisis that they tend to act. But hopefully after this podcast, everyone's going to be convinced. Um, It's a really important part of our bodies. I mean, we don't ignore the rest. We're busily down the gym, you know, getting the rest of our bodies toned. So this part is just sadly a little bit neglected. So thanks, Leslie, for having me. No, not not at all. So um, just to sum up, oestrogen is, I suppose, the master hormone that is having an impact in terms of ageing, thinning, relaxation of of the muscles. And this can cause UTIs as well as the urine leakage that you've spoken about. 
let's move on to incontinence. Um, there are different types. Let's just speak about the ones that are most common that you get to see with uh, patients that are transitioning through menopause or just beyond to hear the kind of problems they might experience. So the most common one is stress incontinence. We know that between 25 and 45% of women suffer with stress incontinence throughout their lives. And I would say that was an understatement. I think it's a much bigger number than that. Everybody who's listening think, have you ever, you know, leaked a bit when you sneezed, coughed, laughed, jumped on the trampoline? So stress incontinence is the commonest thing. And it's not related to mental stress. It's related to physical stress. So that's the commonest type. And it's usually small amounts of leakage. It's not, you know, going to make us wear lots of pads, but it shouldn't happen. And if you're having stress incontinence, you really need to address it because it will get worse. And Jane, on stress incontinence, are there any factors or things that we might be doing that are actually making it worse? Yes, I mean, certainly the commonest cause of stress incontinence is childbirth. Uh, particularly vaginal deliveries and following on from that's the menopause and women are having babies later so if you have children over the age of 35 your risk of stress incontinence goes up and then if you have more than two children it increases and the menopause then makes it worse due to your dropping estrogen levels but other things that are very important in this and I see people who haven't had any children who've had chronic constipation all their lives who struggle with stress incontinence obesity or being very overweight and we do have a population that is larger than before and I've seen quite a lot of women who've come to me and said right I'm taking myself in hand and lost a couple of stones and really improved their pelvic floor obviously we were doing some work on it at the same time but certainly that weight loss is a factor. Why does that have an impact? It's the weight bearing down on the muscles themselves. So with constipation, it's pushing and straining on the loo. It's like having a baby if you're doing that every day, you know. So with obesity or, or being overweight, you know, it's like carrying around heavy objects with you all the time. So a patient of mine who... Um, she was actually a lawyer's clerk and she carried huge files. She was a, worked for a barrister and she'd carried them for years. She'd never had any kids. And literally the, the weight had pushed down on her pelvic floor was shocking. And you would never have associated those two things. So we just need yeah. to sort of think about it, particularly if we have the, have the problem. But the main causes to sum up really are childbirth, menopause and constipation and being obese. Mm, which is why actually having fibre in the diet becomes really important as we kind of move and transition through menopause. So what about treatment for stress incontinence? You said don't ignore it. So what should be the action of someone who is experiencing some leakage when they're dancing or jogging or whatever they're doing? So, I mean, the first line of treatment would be pelvic floor rehabilitation. And, and you know, we've all heard about pelvic floor exercises or key Kegels, um, which started in the US. There was a, a gynaecologist called Arnold Kegel who invented a thing called the perineometer. And I mention this because I'm a very keen fan of gadgets and biofeedback because I think, you know, we're looking after young ones, grannies, university, yeah, you know, sure. all the rest of it. And so we get lost in translation. And if you've got a gadget that you can use and it shows you that you're making progress, it's encouraging. So yes, of course, pelvic floor exercises has to be the sort of gold standard way because it's easy, you can do it on the bus, you can do it wherever you are. And there's a great app called Squeezy. Yeah, that's NHS, isn't it? It is. It was done by some physiotherapists. It's a fantastic tool. It counts for you. You know, after that, you know, you can use things like vaginal weights, 
they start off very light and get heavier. And if you're a hugely busy person, you can just pop them in in the shower and at least you're doing something. And the idea is as it drops down, your muscles try to squeeze it and therefore your muscles get stronger. But it's giving you a tool, an aid. There is then things like the LV trainer, which is a very expensive bit of kit, but works with an app on your phone. And there are various ones of them now out there. I like them because it gives us um, that encouragement that we're getting better. And unless you're visiting somebody like me, you know, every month to see how you're getting on, at least you've got a way of monitoring your own progress. And clearly, if your muscles aren't working at all, you know, then electrical stimulation is a great tool. And there's lots of little devices on the market. I tend to use either the Kegel 8 Mm. device or the Pericarm. They're not hugely expensive and they, you know, it's a vaginal electrode, you pop it in, you know, you need to be sure you don't have any cancer in your pelvis or any underlying conditions. But then all you do is you switch it on, you can, you know, read your book and it's reteaching the muscles how to contract. And so I think, you know, the important thing is that we're doing it correctly. We're doing it enough and we're doing something that works for us. So what should we be doing in terms of our pelvic floor exercises? Because, you know, it's something that I remember being told after having my three kids. And then I sort of forgot about it looking after the three kids. So what, from a clinician's perspective, what is the level that is going to actually have an impact? What is kind of like almost the minimum level? Yeah, so I think, you know, if you're going to do just pelvic floor exercises, because all the other bits of gadgets have like a timed thing, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes or whatever, three times a day, but twice a day, I'm cool. And actually, even if you do it once a day, because I look after women who have got enormously different lives and, you know, some are at home, some are working 14 hours a day, some are traveling a lot. So I think if you can engage your pelvic floor On a regular basis, now if that's once a day or twice a day, the idea being that you start off by contracting it and holding for five seconds and letting go and doing it five times. And when I say contracting it, I mean sort of a pulling in with the anus. So imagine you were about to pass wind in public and you thought, oh, and you would, so you squeeze the anal sphincter. And the other part, imagine you had a tampon in your vagina and you were trying to do a tug of war with it or you were trying Mm -hmm. to stop peeing mid-flow which isn't recommended, but it's a kind of way of learning which muscles you're meant to contract. A good way is sitting on the arm of a chair because you can feel the pelvic floor then actually lifting off the arm of the chair. Some people do it standing up. They seem to like it better. So if you want to do it when you're cleaning your teeth, as long as you associate it to something. It's a weird thing that we'll all go to the gym. We won't forget to have our morning coffee. We won't forget to clean our teeth. So it needs to be part of our lives and part of our routine. Yeah, that's a really good point for, you know, whenever we're introducing new habits, it can be really helpful to identify an existing regular habit and then sort of latch onto it. And there's slow and fast twitch muscles, aren't there? So do you want to talk a little bit about that and and how we should be working them? Yes, of course. So if you think of the fast twitch muscles, they're the ones that the sort of 100 metre sprinters use. And, you know, clearly at the end of their 100 metres, they are absolutely spent. They can't move another muscle because we don't have a lot of fast twitch fibres. And we use those to squeeze quickly if we're going to sneeze. But they tire very quickly. So if you're going to do those, you do 10 little 
squeeze, let go, squeeze, let go, squeeze, let go of your muscles. But you couldn't do hundreds of those because the muscle would tire very fast. And we don't have many of those muscles. We have a lot more of the slow ones. And they're the ones we use. So if we were going for a nice long walk or we're you know just staying continent the whole time, those are the ones we use. And that's why we squeeze, lift and hold and keep holding. That's what those fibres are for. So they're used for two different things. One, when you quickly cough or something and then you, you quickly brace and the slow ones are used for the rest of our lives. So, you know, at what point does one go to a specialist? So, for example, when I sneeze, I literally have to stop wherever I am and just hold in. But I cannot do it, you know, whilst walking. Should I be going to see the specialist at that stage? Well, you certainly should go and have a consultation with somebody, whether that's a pelvic floor physiotherapist, whether it's me, whether it's a urogynecologist. And I think that you clearly need to have a programme to try and help you. Now, as we were saying that pelvic floor rehabilitation is the first line of treatment, There are sort of pessaries you can wear in your vagina and certainly a lot of my runners and people use various things like large tampons. Um, Some people have used the moon cup, although there's been some controversy about it pulling down and making a prolapse worse, but that's just hearsay, it's not clinical fact. But there are also things like Contam and various different companies, Uresta, have done these vaginal pessaries that are specifically for stress incontinence they're not pessaries for for pelvic organ prolapse and they are very different but they sit in the vagina and they just put a bit of pressure on the urethra to prevent you leaking when you particularly want to run now i'm not keen on using those you know all the time because what you want to do is get better something called the tension-free vaginal tape the tvt and many many women have had it it cures stress incontinence in most women and at the moment because there was a mesh problem lots of women have suffered severe pain and distress and I know at the London Clinic we are still removing mesh from women and there's a big court case going on at the moment about it so it's largely halted stress incontinence surgery and the only surgery that you can have is something called a colpose suspension which was the gold standard prior to the TVT. Although it's mostly laparoscopic, it's still a much longer recovery time. With the TVT, you went into hospital, you came out the next day, after a week, you were absolutely fine, you could go off and live your life, have sex. It was a very quick procedure and it worked. So it's even more important that you (laughs) try to fix the problem earlier rather than later so you know there are lots of things that we can be doing in terms of self-care we're not going to cover the other types of incontinence in detail but do you mind just for the record in menopause are there other types that may also sort of you know have an impact for um, people transitioning through menopause there are so stress incontinence is the most common but the second very much similar is something called the overactive bladder so if you have frequency and urgency to pee and you you know you see your front door and you're putting the key in it and you're desperate to 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 wee that's an overactive bladder and it's the bladder just being a bit irritable largely because of the lack of estrogen in the urethra it's sometimes because of a front wall prolapse so cystocele it's called when the bladder prolapses into the vagina and that irritates the bladder a bit and so that's another type and you know sometimes you might be getting up at night to pee a bit more as well and you can have both so probably very commonly women have a bit of overactive bladder and stress incontinence 
So there's an urgent need mm-hmm. to pee yeah. and then step off the pavement and leak. And that's stress incontinence. So the two things actually are quite common together. Thank you, Jane. So um, is there anything on the urge incontinence that we can be doing to help? Quite often, I think vaginal estrogen is very helpful. When I examine women, I look at their vaginas and, and I can tell by examining them if they require vaginal estrogen. And I'm a huge fan of vaginal estrogen. It, it's something that 7% of women are using and probably 70% will benefit from. It's massively underused in women and probably every postmenopausal woman I see and I say to them, you know, is your bladder a bit irritable? Are you having intercourse? And that's all, I can't have intercourse, it's too painful and my bladder's driving me putty. And actually quite often vaginal oestrogen is a really easy solution, so quick fix. You can use a little pessary called Vagifem. There are creams and there are pessaries and there are various things, but it's a very easy thing to do. It's available on prescription from your doctor, so there's there's no reason why you can't do it. It's a tiny dose, it's just absorbed locally. You can also do pelvic floor rehabilitation, which helps maybe keeping a bladder diary because maybe it's that you've suddenly thought in a bid to avoid drinking too much alcohol, which we've all done over the lockdown period. You've taken to fizzy water instead and fizzy water is terrible for bladders and it makes them irritable. Then you can take medication and the medication is actually quite safe and it's a great way of rebooting your bladder if you like so if you take the medication for three months it calms the bladder you improve your pelvic floor tone and obviously you've built up some vaginal estrogen and suddenly you're actually a lot better after that there's loads more Mm. sort of surgically things like tibial nerve stimulation and then sacral nerve stimulation that you can do and if you're really concerned you know you ought to see a urologist because there's always a risk it's something more sinister so if you're concerned and certainly if you've seen any blood in your urine you should go off and be tested properly by your doctor. Well, thank you so much for covering incontinence in depth. And it's really helpful as well for the listeners to get those good tips about what we should be doing and can be doing. So I'd like to move on now to bladder infections or what's known as UTIs. What does UTI stand for and why does it happen in menopause for some It stands for urinary tract infections. We call it cystitis. In menopausal women, it happens as our oestrogen levels drop. The receptors in the urethra aren't so elastic. The thinning of the walls. And when you have intercourse, sometimes the semen will go into the bladder. So it's always good to pee afterwards. Unfortunately, most of the research into urinary tract infection has been done in young women. It's about 20% of people have UTIs. In the very, very elderly, it goes up. So but we're talking here sort of for the over 80s due to other things, medication, inactivity and things like uh, constipation. So, But in the sort of menopausal women, about 20% of us will struggle with them. And the things to do are vaginal oestrogen, pelvic floor rehabilitation, and often it can be a front wall prolapse. And if you imagine if your bladder is bulging into your vagina, you sometimes get stagnant urine sitting there and so it gets infected and that's when uh, you get problems. 
Mm. Now let's talk about, I don't know whether this is a myth or whether it actually works, but antioxidants and, you know, berries, red berries and cranberries and blueberries, I think gooseberries as well. Do they actually work? How much do you need to have to, to ward off and prevent bladder infections? Or is it just better to kind of do more of the topical estrogen? Well, it's very interesting because over the years that I've been doing this, you know, somebody will do a bit of research and some work and, and there was a huge kind of thing about it, probably in the 90s with particularly cranberry juice. And they did lots of papers on it saying that, you know, it was extremely helpful and you need to drink two glasses a day. And there is a bit of evidence anecdotally now, I think, on cranberries. One of the things that seems to work quite well is something called D-mannose, which again is an over-the-counter product. You can buy it in the health food shop. It's simple sugars. And it, of all of the things, seems to help the most. But I think if you've got a urinary tract infection that you your sample has gone to the lab, you really need some antibiotics. With probiotics, there's anecdotal evidence. There's no scientific evidence particularly to say that they are going to cure you of a urinary tract infection. They may be helpful. And certainly if you're taking antibiotics, take them together with the antibiotics, not afterwards, but at the same time. Some women who keep getting recurrent urinary tract infections, we treat them with low dose antibiotic because what happens is you take a dose of antibiotics, you feel brilliant. Then a month later, you've got it again. And whether that's a post-intercourse or it just happens. And so what's happening is you're killing off 99% of the bugs, but you're never quite killing off 100%. So you then get another one. So what we do is we use a low dose, so like 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams of an antibiotic. And you take it every single day for three months. And it just bats on the head every time those little bugs start to rise again. And that is a very good way of ridding yourself of it over a period of time. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Let's talk a little bit about self-care tips. So what are the additional things that people, you know, can do to help? And also thinking about diet as well. Okay, so, I mean, certainly post-intercourse, you must immediately get up and go and pee. Sometimes if you have a bottle of uh, water or if you've got a shower, you know, just run the water over yourself because it rinses off any bacteria that may have happened. Be very careful with using a condom with a spermicide can sometimes be the cause of UTIs. So be careful about what kind of contraception you're using. Avoid sort of spicy foods and, and drink enough. So we need to make sure our urine looks more like champagne than lager. Make sure your wee is is pale in colour. You know, there's no magic cure for this. If you are prone to them, clearly you will know what the triggers are. And sometimes if you use a pessary, a specific prolapse type pessary, that can prevent urinary tract infections in the sense it's pushing the, the bladder back into its normal place. And be careful when you're opening your bowels, you know, make sure you're doing the usual stuff like washing from front to back because, you know, all of these things, if you're prone, will send bacteria into the vagina and into the urethra. So lots of fantastic tips for the listeners to take away there on on UTIs which can become more common as we transition and, and post-menopause. Let's talk now about pelvic prolapse. It's a phrase that you know we might hear banded around. What are the telltale signs behind pelvic prolapse? Okay, so we we call it pelvic organ prolapse because it is a 
prolapsing of our pelvic organs and it's when the muscles and the ligaments of the pelvic floor descend and either your bladder, your bowels or your uterus push down into the vagina and you feel it in a sort of bulge feeling, an uncomfortable feeling when you walk or as though women have described it as I'm sitting on an egg. If it's the back wall of the vagina which is called a rectocele Lots of women tell me they're having to use their fingers in their vagina to push the prolapse back to empty the poo out um, because it's getting lodged in this back wall. And it's commoner than you think. We know that 50% of women over the age of 50 have a degree of prolapse. And prolapse is a big subject. It comes in lots of different grades and lots of different ways. So the commonest form is the sister seal. It's the bladder prolapse. Um, and it's the bladder bulging into the vagina, or again, you get your uterus coming down um, into the vagina. And a lot of us don't even realise we have it. It's sort of like a ticking time bomb, which is a great reason for be doing our pelvic floor exercises. And I would suggest even every time you go and have a smear test or an examination at the doctors, just say, can you just tell me, have I got any prolapse? Because quite often they won't say it to you if it's a tiny little thing, you know, it, but that's when it's best to treat it. Often we don't even know we have a grade one or a grade two prolapse, only when it gets quite a lot worse that we start noticing it and then it's much harder to treat it. Which grade does one need to start getting worried about? Well, so grade one and two are very mild prolapses and really we probably wouldn't even know we had it. And after that, once it becomes quite a significant prolapse, a sort of grade four, you then really are into pessary or surgery. It's very difficult to make it then completely go away again. And the last grade is really where I've only ever seen it about three times, when the cervix is literally hanging out of the vagina. So so that is then a, it's called a prosidencia and it is very difficult to do anything about. You know, you're probably in need of a hysterectomy at that point. So if you can really work hard on your pelvic floor, because the prolapse is a stretching of the wall of the vagina, it's never going to be perfect again. But if you can strengthen the rest of the vagina to protect you, it's like wearing your bra, isn't it? You know, if you've got good, strong support elsewhere, you're able to help maintain the little bit that's a bit weaker. But once it starts to really bulge down, it's much harder to fix it. So uh, I think anybody who's told they've got any kind of prolapse needs to get proactive and do some pelvic floor rehabilitation straight away. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Jane. We've covered an enormous amount today. You know, we've, we've spoken about the different kinds of incontinence. We've spoken about UTIs and now pelvic organ prolapse. And also, most importantly, really helpful self-care tips. So as someone that sees quite a lot of menopausal women at different stages of their journey with pelvic health issues. What message would you like to leave the listener with today? Well, don't neglect your pelvic floor because it needs you. You need to learn to love your pelvic floor a lot, just like we do the rest of our bodies. And um, it will reward you with behaving itself if you look after it. It's so important. We should all be doing our pelvic floor exercises. I hope you're all sitting there doing them now. (laughs) I am, that's for sure. Good girl, Lizzie. (laughs) Jane, you're on Over the Bloody Moon's website as our continent specialist under our team. So that's one way that listeners can reach you. But um, how else could they book an appointment to see you? So you can ring the appointments office at the London Clinic or look at London Clinic's website 
And just to say also for any of us who are Spanish speaking, my book is just about to come out in Spanish. It's very exciting. So um, we've had a whirlwind tour of pelvic health. It's surprising how much is affected by our pelvic floor. So care for your pelvic floor. It needs you. Brilliant, fantastic. Just to show the book again, the Pelvic Floor Bible, there's even more information in the book, so it's definitely worth a read. So thank you so much, Jane, for all of your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been my pleasure too, Leslie. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Mm-hmm.